What is your religion doing for you? What effect is it having in your life? Uh, some would say that their religion is all about receiving forgiveness of sins and thus the promise of heaven. Certainly, that would have some effect on your experience of life here and now. Others might say their religion is all about earning forgiveness of sins and an e eternal reward. Well, that could have an even greater effect on how you live today, believing that you need to earn salvation rather than to receive it. Others might say uh, their religion is all about aligning themselves with the, the spiritual channel through which earthly blessings will flow, usually meaning the pursuit of health, wealth, and prominence. Or maybe it's, it's less about that and more about the community, the community that comes along with the practice of some religion, uh, the relationships that help to provide some measure of happiness in a broken world. Others, uh, with a more therapeutic bent, uh, might say their religion is all about attaining greater peace of mind and contentment in a world filled with suffering and sorrow. The Buddhists would take that even further, aiming at the elimination of all desire whatsoever. What is your religion doing for you? What, what effect is it having in your life? For the born-again Christian, to, to use the language of Jesus in his conversation with the religious leader of Israel in John chapter 3, the question could be reframed as, what is your new birth doing for you? What effect is your new birth having in your life? Last week, uh, we left off in James chapter 1, verse 18, where we read that, Of His own will, the Father of lights brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Thus, James introduces the topic of the new birth, by which we are remade into something new, the, the first fruits of the Father's new creation. So we must ask, have you been born again? And if so, what exactly is the new birth producing in your life? Well, I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, you can find it on page 229 in the second half of the Pew Bible. James chapter 1, verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, well, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, well, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. Oh, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained 
from the world. Let us pray. Father, as we sit under your word of truth, we pray for you to let it take root in any here for whom it has not ever taken root before. And let that implanted word further grow to maturity in us all as a result of our study this morning. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, uh, that phrase in verse 18 where we left off, the, the phrase that speaks of the means by which we are brought forth by the Father, the by the word of truth. Well, that phrase, by the word of truth, it's used to explicitly refer to the message of the gospel four times in the New Testament, uh, making it clear that, that what James is addressing here in this part of his letter is conversion. What Jesus and the Gospels and the other apostles in the New Testament describe as being born again. When, when an unbeliever hears the message of the Gospel, the message that Christ died for our sins and rose again, and upon hearing that good news as they place their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, something supernatural takes place. They are born again. They are given spiritual birth. They are brought forth by the Father as something new. The first fruits of the new creation. It says, Sandy just saying, I believe in miracles because I believe in God. The point being, it's my belief in God that is the miracle. A supernatural thing has taken place to bring me to trust and to follow God. There has been a new birth. There's been a miracle within now, while James doesn't explicitly mention the Holy Spirit here in this part of the letter, uh, both Jesus and the Gospels and especially the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, they make clear that this, this spiritual birth, this regeneration, it's the work of the Holy Spirit within us. He applies the Gospel to our hearts. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read this, In Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the Gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, when you heard the word of truth and believed, you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the dominant message of, of the letter of James, as in all the rest of the New Testament, and as foretold in the Old Testament, the dominant message is that the work of the Holy Spirit within us doesn't end at our conversion. It's not merely a matter of being forgiven of our sins. Conversion is not merely about forgiveness. It's about newness, newness of life. When you come to Christ, you are not merely forgiven. You are made new to something else. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, well, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But what does that mean? What does that look like in your life? Well, that's what the entire letter of James is all about. And, and having introduced this concept of the new birth in verse 18, James then begins to lay out the fruit of this new birth, what it produces within the believer. Verse 19 again. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I wonder if this is where you would begin your description of the new life produced by the new birth. To use James's language in the rest of the passage, uh, when you think about what your religion is doing for you, what effect it's having in your life, is the first place your mind goes to the taming of your tongue. It's not only the first place that James goes in this list and then in the list in verses 26 and 27, but James devotes the majority of the third chapter of his letter to this topic, the taming of the tongue. It's there in in chapter 3, verse 2, that James declares, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, well, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. As Jesus put it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's to say that the words that, that come out of your mouth are the, the clearest indication of the state of your heart. So that, what James is saying in chapter 3, verse 2, if you gain mastery of your mouth, if you gain mastery of your words, well, that means that you have largely gained mastery of your heart. And thus we must strive to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Proverbs uh, chapter 10, verse 19, it sums up this concept well. It says, when words are many, sin is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I'm sure that you know that feeling when you sense that you, you really shouldn't say another word, and you probably shouldn't have said the last word, and yet you continue to speak anyway. And with the multiplying of words comes the multiplying of sin. We understand what it means to be quick to speak. That's our, our natural bent, especially when you note that, that most what most often leads to hasty speech, to being quick to speak, is anger. Anger lies at the root of so much of our, our hasty speech. And this gets back to our discussion of uh, various disordered desires that I discussed last week. Desires that become our masters, are controlling our behavior. Such that when the object of one of our ruling desires of our heart, when the object that we're desiring, when it's threatened or, or when it's withheld from us, we're deprived of it, how do we respond? We respond in anger. But the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, says James. Which is to say that, that our anger is rarely pleasing to God. And it almost never reflects His righteous character. I say rarely and almost never because though God Himself is slow to anger, sin does anger Him. And in the Gospels, we see a handful of times when Jesus became indignant at evil. What angers God should anger us, and increasingly so the more that the new birth takes hold. We should increasingly love what God loves. We should increasingly hate what God hates. The problem for us is that even if our anger is sparked by righteous indignation at evil and sin, 
Well, our own self-serving desires quickly enter into the mix. And our anger, it doesn't remain fixed on the offense against God and against His glory and on what is best for others. But rather, our anger quickly begins to focus on some offense against us, our glory, and on what is best for us. And the problem is we rarely notice this in the moment. Sometimes we do, but in the moment, our anger always feels justified. Our anger always feels godly, like righteous indignation. But rarely is it, at least not purely so. Well, there's, there's far more that, that could be said about our fight against anger. It's top of mind for James for a reason. It's a predicament of us all. But, but for now, uh, let me just recommend a book, one of the best books that I've ever read. It's on this topic. It's titled Uprooting Anger by Robert Jones. I encourage you to, to buy it. Buy, buy two or three copies and get one or two other members of the church together with you to, to read through it. Uprooting Anger by Robert Jones. Very helpful. Getting back to this list of James where he begins by focusing on our struggle to control our words, so often moved by anger. In our interactions with others, we understand what it means to be quick versus slow to anger. We understand what it means to be quick versus slow to speak. But what does it mean to be quick to hear? We're supposed to be quick to hear. Well, it's the opposite of being slow to hear. What's that? To be, to be slow to hear uh, is to, to jump to conclusions about where a person is going in their conversation, cutting them off as you presume to know the point they're making before they've made it. That's being slow to hear. To be quick to hear is to be determined to, to hear people out, choosing to believe the best, presuming that there's more to know than you already know. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Well, having begun with the primary ways that we fail to reflect the righteous character of God, namely hasty speech and self-centered anger, James then broadens the topic to all sin in verse 21. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. This imagery is like old clothing. Uh, that you once never thought about putting on. It just seemed to fit right. It just seemed to be your style. Well, now you must throw it all away. You, you need a whole new wardrobe. It's not that anything has changed with those old clothes that fit so well before. It's that you have changed. If, in fact, you have been changed. If you have received the new birth, then, then the sinful behaviors that once fit you just right, that once seemed so normal and appropriate, that once seemed to bring you some measure of, of pleasure, well, you should increasingly find that sinful behavior repulsive, repugnant, like filthy rags that you wouldn't dare to cover your body in once again. Why? What, what's happening? Well, the Holy Spirit should be progressively making you holy. That's why He's called the Holy Spirit. That's what He does. He makes us more holy, making us more like God. So that's the point as we reflect upon the, the outworking of the new birth. Conversion brings transformation. The transformation to the character of God. As our disordered desires are, are gradually aligned to God's perfect designs, as, as our heart and life are increasingly conformed into the likeness of Christ. So we ask, what is your religion doing for you? What effect is the new birth having 
in your life should be making you more like your heavenly Father, like father, like son and daughter. Conversion brings transformation to the character of God. And James continues in the second half of verse 21, and, he says, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness the implanted word. What, what's that? What is the implanted word that we are to receive? Well, from the context, clearly, it's the word of truth from verse 18. It's the word by which the Father brings forth our spiritual life. The word that saves our souls. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and to speak of the gospel in this way, to, to speak of the gospel as taking root within our hearts, as being the seed from which our spiritual life springs forth. Well, this language, this imagery, it originates in the Old Testament passage that Teresa read earlier from Jeremiah 31. This is the promise of the new covenant. God foretold that under the new covenant, quote, I will put my law, I will put my Torah, I will put my word within my people, and I will write it on their hearts. Not just on a tablet of stone, I'll write it on the hearts of my people, that they may obey. To be a member of the new covenant, to be saved in Christ, is to have God's word implanted within you, written on your heart. And this is then what the Holy Spirit uses to bring about spiritual transformation, the word that's been implanted. Okay, so as he commands us, uh, receive the implanted word, well, what does he mean? Is this just an exhortation to unbelievers to, to come to faith? Well, it certainly applies in that situation, but recall, at least on the surface, James is writing to believers, not to unbelievers. He's writing to people who already have the word of the gospel implanted within them. So then what does it mean for him to command them and for him to command us who believe to further receive that implanted word. Well, the context makes that clear. Don't lose context. He says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Receiving the implanted word is the means by which we put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. We put off sin by taking in God's word. We put off sin by taking in more of God's Word. To receive the implanted word is, is, is to encourage that which has taken root to blossom within us. He's calling us to tend to our budding spiritual life. Like a gardener tends to a cherished plant. Tend to that budding spiritual life within you. Nourish it. Water it. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he spoke about having planted the seed of the gospel in the heart's of the Corinthians through evangelism. But then Apollos came behind him and watered that seed through discipleship. And God gave the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Here how Peter describes it, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a key passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since... You have been born again. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, 
but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. Therefore, put away, same language as James, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Instead, like newborn infants, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, cultivate the gospel seed that has taken root in your heart. Cultivate the gospel seed that has taken root in your heart. And how? By drinking deeply of God's word. This is your spiritual Milk. This is your spiritual sustenance by which you survive and grow. You know, a, a small handful of, of public readings of Scripture on a Sunday morning, along with a half-hour sermon, well, together that is a woefully insufficient meal to sustain your spiritual life for an entire week until we gather again, much less to provide any meaningful growth from week to week over time. And those who most consistently avail themselves of the church's discipleship opportunities, those who most consistently avail themselves of attending faithfully, not just every Sunday morning service, but the discipleship hour before every service, our time of study when we meet on Sunday evenings, well, well those who avail themselves of that most faithfully, well, those are the disciples who will be the quickest to tell you that those Sunday meals are not enough apart from time spent daily in the Word of God. Simeon is eating right now, and he woke me up this morning at 4.30 because he needed to eat. We must eat daily, or we will wither and die. But don't misunderstand. Mere exposure to the words of God in the Bible whether on a Sunday morning or in your daily devotional time, mere exposure in and of itself will profit you nothing. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Apart from, from a passing mention of a double-minded man back in verse 8, this is the first explicit mention of one of the dominant themes of the letter of James, the theme of self-deception. In this case, here in verse 22, uh, the self-deception is, is kidding yourself into thinking that perfunctory exposure to the Bible is actually accomplishing something in your heart and life. This is why James said that you must receive the implanted word with meekness. He said, receive with meekness the implanted word. That is, humbly recognizing your need of it which is to say, humbly recognizing your need to be changed by it. Humbly recognizing your need to be challenged by it, to be corrected by it as you seek to put it into practice. Consider the illustration that James gives in verse 23. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
There's no point in looking at a mirror in the morning if you're not going to act on what you see in that mirror. That's the whole point of looking in the mirror to begin with, to see what's out of place so that you can set it right. Whether it be your hair or your collar or your tie or a piece of spinach tucked between your teeth. As you look into the mirror of God's word, if you're not seeing the things that need to be set right within you, within your life, you're not looking into the mirror with open eyes. And you're just wasting your time. Instead, you must humbly, humbly come to the word with the expectation that it's going to challenge you. And it's going to change you. If that posture of expectation to be challenged and changed, if that's not the posture you've been taking towards God's Word in times of discipleship, well, I guarantee you that just simply making that change alone will radically alter your experience of times of discipleship. Whether it be Sunday school or this worship service on Sunday mornings or the evening gathering or your daily devotional, your experience in the Word will be radically changed if you simply come to it expecting to be challenged and changed. This is what it means to be quick to hear, quick to hear God's Word, presuming that there's more to know than you already know and that this knowledge needs to change you. Psalm 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, his Torah, his word, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Those who, who flourish and thrive spiritually in this life are those who actively and diligently cultivate the gospel seed that has taken root in their heart by careful reflection upon God's Word day and night. Notice that James refers to God's instruction as the law of liberty. The law of liberty. In our sinful state, we think of liberty as the absence of law. But that's not true. God's moral law is not meant to, to hinder us, to restrain us. It's, it's meant to reveal the path of greatest blessing. It's meant to reveal the path of greatest happiness, for it reveals the way that we were made to live. And the, the implanted word, the implanted gospel, it doesn't just free us from the penalty of our sin, the forgiveness of our sins, the Holy Spirit uses the implanted word to free us from the enslaving power of sin, not just as penalty, but its power over us, freeing us to live as we ought to live, as we were made to live. So then cultivate the gospel seed that has taken root in your heart. This is the path to spiritually blessed living. James then continues his discussion of the danger of self-deception in verse 26. He says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, well, this person's religion is worthless. Now, hopefully you know what a bridle is. A bridle is the horse's headgear 
uh, that attaches the bit between their teeth to the reins that the rider uses to control the direction of the horse. Well, James is saying that religion, religion that doesn't help you to likewise get a handle on your tongue, is worthless. Which is to say that it's a false spirituality that doesn't give you control over your tongue. Something essential is missing. Again, of of everything that James could focus on first when it comes to demonstrating the power and thus the, the validity of a person's religion, he goes to our words. Again, our words are the clearest evidence of our need for change, the spiritual rebirth and new life. Our words are arguably the most, um, the area of greatest influence that we have on the lives of others, whether for good or for ill. And it's not just the issue of speaking in anger, like I talked about before from the beginning of the passage, and speaking in haste. There's the even larger category of destructive speech. Gossip. We'll talk further about gossip when we get to chapter 3 and wrestling with the tongue there. For now, let me just read the Apostle Paul's summary statement of the, the proper way to use our tongues. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Hopefully you know it well. It's worth memorizing. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let only that which is good for building up others come out of your mouth. He's calling us to be like our Heavenly Father. Just as God's words are only spoken for the good of others, And just as the implanted word within our hearts brings about good in us and not evil, well, we are to use our words only for good. We are to speak only to seek the good of others. We are to speak only to seek the good of others and never to tear them down. Part of James's point in chapter 3, as we'll get to later, is that none of us have perfectly tamed the tongue because none of us have perfectly tamed our hearts. But even though we're not yet at that point of perfection, we've not yet attained perfection, we should be seeing tangible growth in the area of our tongues. And James is saying that if we're not, we're not seeing tangible growth in taming our tongue, we have deceived our heart about our faith in Christ. Because saving faith is a living faith. That's my summary of the book of James, living faith. The faith that actually saves you is a faith that changes you. It's a living and active faith in your life. It's visible to those around you, not just in your religious activities on a Sunday morning, but but in your interaction with others, your interactions with each other. We're all growing in this. James further addresses this this others-oriented mindset of living faith in verse 27 when he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It reminds us of our study of Ruth, right? As we saw in our study of Ruth, in ancient society, uh, the plight of a widow who did not have any family members to care for her, was dire. And the same was true for orphans in that land. Their survival depended entirely on the goodwill of their neighbors. To visit them in their affliction means to take notice of them and to provide tangible care. 
This is religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. As I began the service this morning, Psalm 68 verse 5 describes God as father of the fatherless, protector of widows. It's clear throughout the scriptures and throughout the history of Christ's church that the way that God the Father provides this care for the fatherless and the protection of widows is through the actions of his people. We are increasingly to reflect his character in doing his will, being a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. All right, so what does that look for us, like for us in our day, in, in our culture, in our society? Well, it's like a lot of things. With respect to orphans, whether those who have been orphaned uh, through the death of their parents or orphaned through abandonment or orphaned through some other separation, it looks like fostering. And if not fostering ourselves, then coming alongside foster parents to provide support. It looks like adopting. If not adopting ourselves, then coming alongside adoptive parents to provide support. All of this has been a distinguishing mark of the Christian church since the first century. As you read some of the Roman historians of the first century, this is what they take note of in the Christians. It's one of the first things they say. Is, These are strange people who go out of their way to care for the fatherless, for the abandoned, for those left to die by exposure. Care for the fatherless. With respect for what it looks like to care for widows in our day, there's, there's much that could be said, but, but a helpful place to start is with literal visits. Visit the widows. And notice that it's not, just a, it's not just a command for pastors and elders to do. This is for all to do. This is religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, to visit widows in their affliction. It takes us all. Finally, note that James doesn't merely focus on our influence upon others with our speech, with our actions, it's not just our influence upon others that he focuses on. He focuses then at the very end of verse 27 on others' influence upon us, calling us to keep ourselves unstained from the world. So having spent time considering the power of the word to influence us for good, now he focuses on the power of the world to influence us for the worse. The world. It exerts its influence on us merely by virtue of us being in it. But how much more so if we needlessly consume the poisoned food that it serves up for entertainment? I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a less productive and more destructive use of your time than television. Perhaps nothing more so than the so-called news networks. They simply exist to push propaganda designed to inculcate a godless worldview in your heart. So as you think about it, as you look at your life and the characteristics of the new birth within you, what's influencing you more? The Word or the world? Consider what's influencing you more, the Word or the world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Romans 12.2 Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, 15-16. Let's depart considering this question. What is your religion doing for you? What effect is it having in your life? Let us pray. 
Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us, your perfect law, the law of liberty. Let that word take root in us. Let it transform us. Let us not be conformed to this world. Let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds, cultivating the gospel seed that has been implanted in our hearts through the study of your word. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.